I was thinking about kids and, and uh, dreams. We're going to be talking in Daniel chapter 2 about dreams, so I thought I would start having a little fun with dreams. I could tell you what some of your dreams mean. I could be a Daniel or a Chaldean. I could interpret dreams. Um, do dreams have any meaning? You have a dream, what does it mean? Well, well, maybe that dream means you shouldn't watch TV, you shouldn't watch certain videos, and maybe especially before you go to bed. But there are some dreams that we have that most of us have probably had at one time or another. There are some dreams that a, a variation of it is, is, is pretty common in our experience. For instance, did you know that most people at some time or another, so you're not weird on this, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands though. Most people one time or another have a dream where they're in public in their underwear. Or maybe even less. I'm not going to ask you if you've had a dream like that. I will admit I've had a dream like that. And what does such a dream mean? Well, there's pretty, pretty much agreement in uh, dream masters, uh, astrologers, soothsayers, and Chaldeans that that kind of dream means there's some, you're afraid of being exposed in some way. Either you're, you're not sure you're competent at what you're supposed to do and you're afraid others are going to see it, they're going to find out. Or maybe it means that you've got something that you're hiding that you don't want other people to know you're afraid they're going to find out. You're afraid of being exposed. And so there in your dream, you're exposed in public. That makes a lot of sense. Here's another one that's, again, fairly common. Kids, your parents take themselves typically back to high school in this one. They dream that they've got to take a test. I've had this dream at certain times, and, and uh, certainly within, la within the last year, I know I've had this dream again, and it was a math test, and I had blown off the class, I had stopped doing homework, I wasn't studying, I wasn't keeping up, I was going to fail the class, excuse me, sorry about that, but, but if, I, if, I, if I could pass the test, I'd be okay, I'd pass the class, although the teacher didn't think I could pass the test. I woke up and I'm thinking, I got to pass this test. I had to realize, no, no, I'm not in high school anymore. And I'm actually graduated college, and I had grad school, and more after that. I, I don't need to pass a high school math test. But that's how real it was. And it's, there's, some, there's some challenge that you're facing, some, some, some circumstance, and there's a lot that rides on it, and you don't know if you can do it. You're feeling pressure. You're under stress. That's what that dream means. Why does it go back to high school so often, not college, not grad school? Because this, uh, high school is such a time often for us of anxiety. A lot of pressure in high school. So there's a, there's a throw out to the kids in high school. A lot of pressure there. Take, take it easy on yourselves. How about uh, you're having a dream and you can't find a bathroom? Well, that just means you had too much water before you went to bed. Here's a common one for new parents. New parents in the group. Ask it, those of you that aren't new parents, ask a new parent if they've ever had this dream. They lost their child. They misplaced their baby. Left them in the stroller somewhere. Don't know where their baby is. That dream typically is, I'm afraid. I don't know how to parent. I don't know what I'm doing here. What, what, that's, that's not rocket science to figure that one out. What, what new parent does, right? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm afraid I'm going to destroy. I'm afraid I'm going to lose this child because I don't know what I'm doing as a parent. Dreams tell us, basically dreams tell us 
normally what our mind is thinking. Even if we've talked ourselves in another direction, this is what your subconscious is thinking and working on. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, dreams are different, though. Sometimes in the Old Testament, dreams told what God was saying. For instance, in the book of Hebrews, it says, uh, well, no, let me go another another Old Testament verse, verse first. It says, and this one's often misused. It's misused in terms of vision and direction, and this is the future. This is what we got to chase after. Well, maybe that's true for this or not, because the, the verse says this, without a vision, the people perish. You say, see, we need to cast a vision, and we need a direction. But that direction's got to come from God, because the verse goes on, without a vision, the people perish. It's a prophetic vision. And, but blessed are those who follow God's word or God's law. You see, the vision is paralleled in the second half of the, of, of the, of the Hebrew poetry with God's word. So without a word from God, a vision, a prophetic vision, as God often spoke in the Old Testament, the people perish, or they're on their own, or they're without restraint. How do you know, then, what God is saying? Is God talking to you in your dreams? Is that the primary method that God speaks to us today, then? No. Hebrews chapter 1 says this. It opens with this, in fact. God who in various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us in his Son. The Son who is the heir of all things. The Son who is the creator of all things. The Son who is in the very image of the Father is the fullest and best revelation of God to us. God spoke in all kinds of ways, but now God has spoken to us in his Son. You want to know what God is saying to you today? Listen to what Jesus has said. Listen to what God has said about Jesus in his word, and you'll know what God is speaking to you today. I want to talk about dreams because the chapter that we're in, in the, in the book of Daniel, Daniel in the deep state, Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's a dream that troubles him. I'll talk about it in just a minute, but first, let's, let's get into the story. Daniel, remember, is a young man. In the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar assumes the throne, and he, he takes some of the best, the brightest, the noble sons, uh, youth, the, uh, the ruling families in Jerusalem. He takes some of those youth back to Babylon, full-ride scholarship to the University of Babylon. He's going to develop them, remold them into Babylonian ways of thinking, but because of their potential, they are going to be the best and the brightest from around the world, part of Nebuchadnezzar's new administration. He's just taken over the throne. His father has died, and he's raising up a a young group of new leaders who will be faithful to him. Daniel is part of those candidates. All right, so Daniel's in Babylon ahead of the other exiles who will come in two following waves that'll be more serious as things get worse in Judah and Jerusalem. It's in the second year in chapter 2, the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which means he's only been on the throne now. This is his second year. Two years he's been king. He's only 25 years old. And Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural, His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. This dream is keeping him awake at night. He has the dream and he wakes up and he can't get back to sleep. So concerned, worried, stressed is he about this dream. 
And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in, they stood before the king. Now who are these guys? These are the spiritual sages of Babylon. This is a cohort of philosophers and contemplators, and they're standing between, they are older, they are wise. They are the, uh, the epitome of wisdom and direction and stability in Babylon. And they are summoned before this young king. They were in the administration of his father. They may have been doing this longer than his father even was king. They're respected. They're not to be questioned. They have been in government forever, directing the kings and what they should do. And they stand before young Nebuchadnezzar, who hasn't been raised up in the administration and the bureaucracy. Young Nebuchadnezzar, who is a, who is a, a military general and a man of action. Do you think there's a, a clash of perspectives between these two? Possibly. So they come, they stand before the king, and the king says, I had a dream. Wait a minute, I thought he had dreams. He says, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. It's because I think what's going on there is he has this one dream, a particular dream, and he's having it over and over again. You have a strange dream once, and maybe you just had a bad bowl of baba ganoush. You have a strange dream a couple of times, and maybe you're stressed. You know, there's a lot going on at work. Uh, King Neb, he's, he's conquering countries. He's rebuilding the city. He's putting up statues and idols and temples. He's got a lot going on. Maybe he's stressing about some of that. You keep having this dream, and he begins to think, a God is trying to tell me something. Now, what is it about the dream? What is this dream? Let's talk about the dream so you understand some of his stress, why he's worried about it. If you move over to verse 31, we get the first description of the dream only when Daniel comes in after God gives it to him. So there's been some other events that will happen we'll talk about, but I'm going to jump to the dream so you see why Nebuchadnezzar is anxious. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. And this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, it stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. It's frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest and arms were of silver. Its middle and thighs were of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, by God's hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces, and they turned into dust. And those heavy metals were now blown away like chaff in the air. They're gone. Like the summer threshing floors, the wind carried them away that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Daniel will say to Nebuchadnezzar, but we haven't gotten there yet. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's a frightening dream, and it's a dream that seems to show an image, but the image changes. And this image seems to be a strong ruler kind of an image, but the image changes, and then the image itself is destroyed by something external to it. If you're the king... You want to know what that means. 
And what does it maybe have to do with you? Okay, so there we are. So he, he summoned in these magicians and astrologists and, and Chaldeans and so on, the, the wise men, the spiritual sages of Babylon. And they said, well, oh, king, live forever. It's a standard greeting when you're talking to the king. But just two years ago, King Nebuchadnezzar had, had prayed at his coronation to his God that his God would let him reign forever. This king wants to live forever. They say, oh, king, live forever. Sounds like they're loyal, folks. Tell your servant the dream. We'll, we'll show you the interpretation. The king said, no, no, the word for me is firm. You tell me the dream and its interpretation. If you don't, you will be torn limb from limb and your house is laid in ruins. But if you do tell me the dream and its interpretation, you'll, be, you'll receive gifts and rewards and great honor. So show me the dream and the interpretation. Now, there's some, there's some ambiguity there. He wants to know the dream. Is he forgetting the dream? It's kind of like you. You wake up and you know you had a dream. And you remember some of the details of it. And you go downstairs and, you, and, you're, and you're trying to tell the dream to your spouse or to one of your kids and you, you can't quite remember all the details anymore. Maybe that's going on with Nebuchadnezzar or maybe something else. Well, anyway, the Chaldeans say, well, we've got, we've got books, we've got shelves, we've got libraries full of we can You tell us the dream and we're going to be able to look it up and we're going to put it together and we're going to know this is what the dream means. He says, no, 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 you tell me the dream. Why is he so firm on that? They tell him again, it can't be done. Let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show you its interpretation. In verse 8, the king answers that I know with certainty you are trying to gain time because you see my word is form. If you do not make the dream known to me, there's one sentence for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. What's Nebuchadnezzar's concern here? Nebuchadnezzar probably has heard, maybe he sat with his father and his father is talking about what the Chaldeans and the soothsayers and astrologists told him. And the future turned out differently from what they said. A battle went a different, I don't know, but what his background with these guys is um, underneath his father. But, but he's suspicious of them. He thinks they're just going to make stuff up. They're going to tell him what they want to tell him. They're going to tell him what they think he wants to hear. They're going to piece some things together that seem to fit the dream that he tells them he has had. And how could he argue with that? You're just playing with me, he said, until the times change. What is Nebuchadnezzar afraid of? The times change when the statue goes from gold to silver. Or the times change when the statue goes from heavy metals to dust and is gone. Nebuchadnezzar is afraid there's a change coming and he's not a part of it. Or he's a part of it in a bad way. And he's afraid that these guys might be in on it. These, there might be a coup going on. The deep state may be out to get him. This young, ambitious, violent general who just wants to conquer the world, and they want to put somebody who is noble and wise like them in his place. He doesn't trust them. You're just waiting me out. Tell me the dream so I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. If you can tell me the dream, then I can believe what you tell me about the dream. And they say, King, that's ridiculous. 
how dare you say things to the king? That's basically what they say. King, that's ridiculous. In fact, no, none of the great and mighty kings has ever asked such a thing of his Chaldeans and wise men and astrologers and magi. It's never been done. You're out of line asking us that. Not the thing to say to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, they said to him, this is impossible. No human can do this. That kind of knowledge, what's inside your own head that maybe you don't even remember, that is only with the gods and they aren't here with us. That's what they say. But there's a problem with that. If they can't tell him what really matters, and if the words of the gods are not with them, what good are they? Of what use are they to Nebuchadnezzar? And so, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond to be told, first of all, king, you're out of line. You don't dare ask us that. Because of this, in verse 12, the king was angry. The king was enraged, is the word. He was very furious. He is nostril flaring, eyes bulging, spittle spewing rage. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, all the commands for all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. So the decree went out. The wise men were about to all be killed. And they sought Daniel's companions to kill them too. Why Daniel's companions? They're not in this group. They're not standing before Nebuchadnezzar that day. They're still in school. Now some of these guys may have been their professors. The, they're still at the university. They're still going through the three-year program. It's only the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. But they're wise guys in training, you see. They're going to join this cohort that have just declared themselves useless and obsolete. And Daniel says, I'm getting rid of, or, or rather Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm getting rid of all of them. And so Arioch, the king's captain of the guard, he decides, well, we're going to get rid of all of them there. We're going we're to cut down the tree and pull up the root. We're going to get rid of all the ones, the ones in the pipeline as well. And so he goes, they, they, they go to the university. They go, they go to round up the students there, including Daniel and his friends. And so, Daniel inquired with prudence and discretion. You know, I'll tell you, if you're younger, there are times not to be cocky and flippant. This is probably one of those times. Daniel ad answers with prudence, with discretion. He's careful in what he says to the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill everybody. And he, and he says, why is the decree of the king so urgent. Why, or why is it so harsh, is another way to translate that word. Then Arioch made the matter known. He explained. He told the story to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Does he go in before Nebuchadnezzar at this time? I hope not, because he's probably still, he's probably still eyes bulging, nostrils flaring, spittle spewing in rage. So this is not the time to see the king. Maybe he just gets an appointment. Maybe he, he, he goes to the king's office and, and requests a time for giving the king the answer that he seeks. He's granted that time. And so he goes home. He goes home and there his, his, his roommates are with him. Remember his roommates. His roommates' names mean Yahweh is gracious who is like our Elohim, and Yahweh is my helper. So he goes to them and he tells them the situation. He says, guys, let's pray. Let's pray that God would, would give us mercy. The God of heaven would give us mercy concerning this mystery. 
so that Daniel's companions might not be destroyed with, with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So, Daniel tells us something, shows us something here about what to do when you're in trouble, what to do when, when, when things are urgent. Gather together with others. I hope you've got a small group. These are people that will pray for you. These are people that you pray for. They know some of what's going on in your life, and they will pray for you, and they will come alongside you. They will even challenge you. That becomes gold here. Daniel's got go-to guys. And they join with him, and they are praying together, asking God for mercy, that they won't be destroyed with the wise men of Babylon. Now, is Daniel and, are Daniel and his friends praying, Lord, let us not die while all those guys die? Or is he saying, let us not be destroyed with, let, us, let also the wise men of Babylon not be destroyed? Is, is Nebuchadnezzar only, or rather is Daniel, sorry, is Daniel only praying for himself, or does he pray for others? Well, as you read the story further, once he's given the interpretation, after the celebration here that, that God is, that God is the one to whom belongs wisdom and strength, verse 21, that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Daniel has seen the dream. And Daniel has been told by God what it means. And God is the one who removes kings and who sets up kings. That's what the dream is all about. He gives wisdom to the wise and he's given knowledge and understanding to them. He's revealed the deep and hidden things. God knows what's in the darkness and nothing is hidden from him. Is that good news to you or bad news? God knows the hidden things. Nothing is in the darkness with him. Light dwells with him. That's good news. Because our God is a God who forgives. And when we confess and when we agree with him, even about our hidden things, even about those things that would cause us to have a dream where we're before, in front of other people in our underwear, I can pray to God and God will forgive me for being out there in my underwear. God will forgive the hidden thing that brings shame to my heart. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're not hiding anything from God. He already knows it. And he is ready to forgive. Why not just say, God, you're right. You're right about this. Please forgive me. And in Jesus he does. That is who our God is. To you, O God, our fathers, I give thanks and praise. You have given me wisdom. You have made known to me what was asked. You have made known to us the king's need. You've showed us what the king needs to know. Isn't it interesting? God wants the king to know. God cares about Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know or care about God. Another insight into what our God is like. So, so Daniel runs back to Arioch. The king had appointed to destroy all the wise men. And this is what he says. He says, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. He doesn't say, don't kill us. We've got the answer. You can go ahead and kill those guys. No, no. He, he joins himself with astrologers and soothsayers and magicians and the Chaldeans and all their pagan philosophies. And he, and he puts himself as a shield for those guys. There's a Jesus moment in the story. They don't deserve it. They're not even believers. They are, they are, they, they, their confidence is in other gods and in other wisdom. And yet Daniel cares about them too. Daniel says, don't kill him. Don't kill him because God has given me the answer. Not only for Nebuchadnezzar, but also for them. 
Our God is merciful. And so Arioch, not one to miss the chance to take somebody's credit, Arioch runs in and he tells the king, I have found among the exiles someone who can interpret the dream. There's a contrast between Arioch and, and Daniel here because Arioch's a bit proud. Daniel, not so much. And so he brings Daniel in and the king right away asked Daniel, are you, in verse 26, are you able to make known to me the dream I have seen and its interpretation. And Daniel says, no. Ooh, what? Well, unfortunately, he doesn't just say no. Daniel says, no wise men, enchanter, magician, or astrologers can show the king the mystery the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay on your bed are these and he begins to, he's going to explain the dream. But first he says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king that you may know and understand the thoughts that are inside your own head. God wants you to know, king. Daniel doesn't watch in and march in and say, king, I have got something that you need to know. Daniel walks in and says, King, God has given me something for you that you need to know. This is not of me. This is what God has given. Then he, he explains the dream. And can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. That, that and then those toes. Yeah, yeah, that was it. And now Daniel's going to say, that was the dream. Now we'll make known to you its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, and Nebuchadnezzar's got to feel good about this. You, whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. If you've got to be part of this dream, you don't want to be the clay toes, okay? That's just not the best part to be in this dream. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. I'm the head of gold. What's he going to do in chapter 3? He's going to build a whole statue of gold. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar likes this part. So you are the head of gold, but another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. There's another king coming. And there's a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there should be a fourth kingdom. There is a series of kingdom, and God is sovereign over the kingdoms. All of these kingdoms, they're going to come and they're going to go and they're going to be replaced by another. And just like God gave you the kingdom, God is going to allow other kingdoms to come. But there's going to be a time when there's a stone. And a stone was cut from mountains by human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay. It didn't just didn't just destroy the toes, folks. It destroyed everything, so there was no trace left. And God will establish his kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. There's Revelation 11.25. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. God's word is true. 
Well, we've given the dream. We've briefly given Daniel's interpretation. Time is running out. So, what about the application? There's observing the dream. There's interpreting the dream. The dream is the series of kingdoms. We want to plug in. Okay, there's Babylon, so there's Persia, and there's, and there's um, Greece, Alexander the Great, and there's Rome, and there's after the div- division of the Roman empires and the coalitions around the world and agreements that are made, marriages trying to put countries together into alliances. We can try to figure out prophetically already what Daniel 2 is saying but it's not saying that yet. That's not the point yet. Now, you come along later on in Daniel 7 and, and Daniel 9, and there's going to be a whole lot more detail going, added into this picture that is going to fill in some of those gaps for us, but we're not given that yet. All we're told is God is sovereign over all of it. God is the one who's in charge. The point of the vision is that history is moving according to God's sovereign purposes and rulers and empires will come and go until God himself personally intervenes. Nebuchadnezzar did not not make this as successful as he was. It was given to him and he will pass and the mess will be given to others. In the words of Daniel 4, 17 and 25, the most high rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he will. In the midst of all kinds of uncertainty, don't forget this. God is in charge. Our God reigns. There's not a, this is not the place to know exactly what's coming and when that's going to happen. That's not the point. But the point is that Nebuchadnezzar's rule has a shelf life. It will end. Every empire has a shelf life, which only God knows. So in the midst of our little point in history, what are you worried about? What are you anxious about? What is it that gives you bad dreams at night that make you try to figure out what is going on? What's going to happen? Do you believe that God also rules over this bit of history that you and I are in the middle of? Our God reigns. I was speaking with one of our one of our senior saints earlier this week. Uh, Eva is, is on um, comfort care, and she doesn't know how many days God will continue to give her, and uh, yet her desire is to love her Lord, to serve her Lord, and to, as soon as he would have, because he is sovereign, to be with her Lord and Savior. The, this mortal, frail, weak body wears out, but I am encouraged when I visit her of the confidence of her hope in God's sovereignty and in his salvation, of his desire for her to be with him forever because Jesus is her Savior. She's an encouragement. She she is not at all worried about her future. The reality of of a new future also raises the possibility of a new present. It does not mean that we have no hope in the present. Our God is sovereign. He intervenes even today. That's why you pray. How might God use you? Maybe you're a young, out of your place, maybe still in school, don't have any real position or influence like these Chaldeans thought they did. How could God use you? Or maybe you're not so young, but still don't feel like you have any real influence or control, impact. How would God use you? Well, what does he do here? God uses 
the unlikely in the midst, the exile from Jerusalem who's still in the middle of his schooling, who's fussy about what he eats. And God uses him to be the one that can speak to the king. God will also establish his kingdom. You can be sure about it. We hear about it. We have read about it. We long for it, and we say, how long? And as you wait, as you wait, Peter says there will be others who will say, ha, where is the promise of his coming? From the beginning until now, things have just continued as they always were. They, they will always be as they've always been. And even then, they forget, wait, wasn't there a flood? Hasn't God already catastrophically intervened in human history? Well, let's not talk about that. There's other, there's other explanations for that. God will establish his kingdom, and, he, and it will be a replacement to the world's kingdom. It's not going to come through the world's kingdom. It's not going to come through the world getting better and better and us organizing ourselves out of this mess. God's purposes can be advanced by this party or that one. God's purposes can be worked through this leader or that one or this country or even an empire. But God's kingdom will not be through any world power or order. It's by his own doing. God lends kingdoms and authority to men to do with as they will. But nobody brings in the kingdom of God. God's kingdom will be brought in by him forever. So, don't let your politics become your religion. It's interesting that in America we have taken faith out of the public square and yet we have made politics a new faith. We have made politics a new religion, at least in some corners to some people. And it's a dangerous thing because then our confidence, our worship, our hope is in fellow humans who are no less flawed than we. Now, we would assume they're probably more flawed because they don't see things our way. That's typically the way any human thinks. But don't let your politics become your religion. However, let your faith influence and impact your political involvement, whatever that may be. Bring your faith to bear. Make those decisions. Vote or serve, and however you serve, as an expression of your faith in ways that align with what God has said in his word. We can apply this reality of God's coming kingdom to those who work and rule in the present world. Whether you work, whether you rule, whether you're in government, whether you are an appointed official as Daniel and his friends will be, we work as light in the midst of darkness, even as Daniel was in Babylon. Babylon would not be able to bring in God's kingdom. Even if Nebuchadnezzar is remarkably saved, and that would be getting ahead of the story, but Babylon won't bring in God's kingdom, yet God has put Daniel there for such a time as this. Isn't it interesting how God is going to use Daniel, a insignificant, seemingly exile youth, God is going to use him to come close to the king, to be exalted by the king, that God is going to use him to serve as a mediator and prepare the way for when more exiles will be coming from Judah and Jerusalem to Babylon. And they will be better off. They will experience mercy in the Babylonian order that especially after the ultimate rebellion and the sacking of Jerusalem in, in, in 586 BC that none of them have any claim to. 
They are enemies of Babylon, and yet they will have some protection because God has set Daniel there. And it all started with four friends who agreed together, we've got to do what God says instead of what the king is telling us. That's where it started. Their decision to believe and trust God instead. God will use you in the midst of an ungodly environment. Don't be ashamed of your faith or afraid to stand in it. Finally, there is a future. There is a future real kingdom of God on this earth. It literally, physically, it's not merely the kingdom of God in the heart of each one who believes. It's not merely the rule of God from heaven, which is the kingdom of God. God will establish his kingdom. And all that is wrong, all that is corrupt, all that is unjust, it'll all be swept away. We have been told to pray by Jesus himself, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus instructed his disciples to pray that at precisely the times when it seems the least possible. And yet we pray, God is sovereign. When Jesus tells his disciples to pray, let your kingdom come, he is telling his disciples to believe the book of Daniel, that what God has said is true. God's sovereignty, however, does not excuse our inactivity. Daniel's not inactive. Daniel prays, Daniel expects that God has raised him up and God will use him at just a time as this. God expects that this is not only about him and for him, that this also concerns these other wise men, that he's the one that God is going to use to give them more time. Maybe God will speak to them through him as well. In the end, Nebuchadnezzar honors Daniel's God through Daniel. He gives, he, he, he falls, the king, Nebuchadnezzar of all people, falls down on his face before Daniel. And he commanded that offerings and incense be offered. And the king answered and said to Daniel, is he worshiping Daniel here? No. He says, truly your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings, a reveal of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery, this hidden thing. And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Does that happen right then in the second year? Because they haven't been examined after the third year in the program yet. We're not really sure. It could go either way. The examination could just be a, a validation at the end of three years that what the king already saw here was true, or whether this is added in at this story as what the king is going to ultimately do after the third year. That we don't know, and it really doesn't matter so much. But imagine this. Three young Jewish exiles, just kids out of school, are now the mayoral council of the province of Babylon. From Exiles in Babylon to officials over Babylon. How did that happen? Look what God can do. Where did it start? They believed God's word in chapter 1. And so they believed it and prayed to God for his mercy in chapter 2. And look how God has used them. Look how God will use you.
So let's pray. Father, would you indeed then give us mercy? Lord, any one of us here know of a situation, know of a circumstance. Lord, we know of a need where there are people around us that also need to hear from you. They need your truth in the midst of all the other things they're hearing or being told. Lord, we ourselves need to know that you are the sovereign God in the midst of much uncertainty. Lord, you've reminded us just in these past months of things that we don't know, of what we cannot control. So, Father, in the midst of that, though, instead of making us worried or insecure, Father, would you give us the courage to rest our faith in you, to believe what you have said, and also then, Lord, to, to bow our knees, to, to call out in your name for mercy for ourselves, but, Lord, for those around us, a neighbor, a friend, someone, Lord, whom you would be gracious, whom you would give wisdom and strength for us to be your messenger too. And we ask that, Father, in Jesus' name.